Beloved, let me invite you to open your Bibles with me to the second Psalm, Psalm 2. And when you've found your way to Psalm 2, let me invite you to stand. I'll be reading from the New International Version, Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. And you'll hear some repetition here from what Max just prayed for us, allow this to be a reinforcement as we look at this in a few minutes. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. And you can be seated. Well, church, tonight we approach Psalm 2 together, and much of what was just read and prayed over has already laid for us a foundation of of what we're really after in Psalm 2, and that is a worldview which is founded on the Lordship of Christ. The Christian worldview differs from every other major worldview that's out there in this one respect, that Christ is Lord, and it is from that established truth that all other things that Christians do, believe, say, and practice emanates from. His Lordship is the central belief of the Christian. It is the foundational belief of the church. And his Lordship is from beginning to end the uh, assumption in the Bible. Nowhere in Scripture will you find an argument for why it is a good thing for God to be king, only that it is a good thing for him to be king, and he is actually king. It is a a presuppositional truth claim, meaning it is the foundation and the bedrock upon which Scripture assumes everything else. And it is this truth claim that we find so foreign to ourselves today because we think of these verses— and if you're like me, your heart's inclination when you, when you read these verses is to say, well, why should he be king? 
Or, or why is it fitting for him to rule in this position? Or, or what right does he have to reign on this throne? This is the way that we read this text as people who live in a, a fallen world. And to explain why we struggle so much with these verses, we need to understand our position in light of God's good creation, uh, which is that we are creatures who exist post-initial rebellion from our forefather, Adam. As he rebelled and Eve rebelled in the garden, uh, we know that every inclination of the human heart from thence forward is one of rebellion. Such that when initially in good creation, when, when the king was ruling and reigning, it was a good thing for humans to embrace and to enjoy. And ever since that initial rebellion, our default position in relation to God has been one of rejection, rebellion, and uh, indignant uh, response towards him. We, we certainly don't want to do what this psalm says at first, which is to kiss the son or to serve him loyally. Uh, even those of us who were raised in a Christian home and raised under the teachings of scripture and have had the blessing of being ministered to by our parents, we still can point to times in our lives where we wrestled with and struggled with and even cast off the authority of God from our daily walk and daily life. It is not just those in the world who struggle to submit themselves to the authority of Christ. It is also those within the church who struggle to submit to his authority. And it is even those who have sworn allegiance to him that struggle in their practice and in their life to actually live out that obedience. And so it is with all of those things in mind that we approach Psalm 2, and we are going to address tonight the issue of uh, what does it mean to kiss the sun? What does it mean to live your life obe obeying Christ, being obedient towards him, and serving him with everything that you are? And to understand what kissing the sun is, we need to set the background, we need to set the scene, which the psalmist does here in the first three verses by telling us what is the world like? What's it like down here on earth with you and I as we live? Well, the psalmist tells us uh, in a series of questions found in verses 1 and 2 and then a statement in verse 3. The question first, why is it that the nations rage? The question at second, why do the peoples plot in vain? That why, poetically, because this is Hebrew poetry, actually carries throughout those first four lines. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves? And why do the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed? What explains the world as we observe it around us? What is it that explains the rebellion of the human heart? Why is it that those who are appointed authorities over us take the authority that they have and reject the authority that is over them with their attained authority? Why is it that with our freedom and our autonomy, we seek to throw away God's authority from us? What is it that explains the raging chaos of the nations? It is the fact that we are a fallen creature bounded by sin at start. Now, Scripture both tells us this and proves it to us with a myriad of examples. So, for instance, if we were to consider early examples of this fall, we would see Genesis 
1, 2, setting the pretext for Genesis 3, which is the fall. A perfect creation, a good garden, everything that human hearts could want, and yet one thing off limits, and humans want the thing that is off limits. But it doesn't take long for that same pattern to reemerge. In fact, by the time Genesis 6 rolls around, we see that it is actually true that humans' only inclination from the heart is evil continuously against their God. But what explains that? Well, it, it must be something more than just Adam and Eve's own weakness. It must be something that gets down to our very nature, because as soon as the generation from Genesis 5 is done away with in the flood of Noah, uh, no sooner has that new community of the world been established than Noah himself reveals himself to be a drunk, and his descendants form the Tower of Babel, saying, let us build a tower to heaven so that we can sit where God sits, so we can reign in place of the one who claims to reign over us. And in those couple of chapters, in those 11 chapters, you have a snapshot of the whole hu- the human condition. In fact, the rest of the Bible simply pivots back and forth, showing us of God's redemption in the context of human rebellion. It is not long before the Israelites are rescued from Egypt. Then they begin to grumble to Moses in the wilderness and say things like, wasn't it so good when we were back in Egypt, when they fed us and cared for us? And yeah, they were our slave masters and they were harsh to us, but it was good in Egypt while we were there. And the grumbling of even God's own people against the God who they are going out to serve and to follow is evident. No sooner does Israel enter the promised land than the people in one generation fall away from their obedience to the king and say things like, well, it doesn't matter what God told us or what Moses told us or what Joshua told us. Maybe these people aren't so bad. Maybe their gods aren't so dangerous. Maybe we can intermarry and intermingle and believe what they believe, mix some of our practice with their practice, and have a real utopian community among us. And we see the wickedness that leads to, the sinfulness that that attains. This is something that goes down to the very nature of humanity. And I'm just giving you snapshots from the first couple of chapters of the Bible and the first couple of books of the Bible. That's not to say anything of the kings of Israel who are instituted as God's authority who depart from obedience to his word and to his law and don't actually serve the one who they claim to represent as they sit on the throne. And it also describes, well, the rebellion of the Pharisees in the New Testament as they sit and enthrone themselves instead of Yahweh as the teachers of Israel. And they do not say, we must serve this king as well. They say, you must serve the king and we tell you how to serve the king. It explains the whole rebellion of the human existence. And that's true even throughout history post-Christ, post-resurrection. As we see the world around us rebel against God and rebel against his authority. And it's not as though this is one person in a corner who does this kind of thing. Actually, the psalm tells us that all of the peoples plot together in vain. In fact, that word there, plot, is the same word that we see of the blessed man in Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he plots day and night. 
As the blessed man meditates on God's law and obeys God's law, the counsel of the wicked meditate upon their plans against God's law, their plans against his authority. The people's plot or meditate in vain about how they're going to overthrow the king rather than meditating on how they should serve the king. The point is it's a, it's a well-crafted group effort, organized experience to deal once and for all with this one who sits on the throne. As we know, it takes quite a conspiracy to do away with a leader. And no conspiracy is as uh, well-known to me and probably as well-known to pop culture as the conspiracy to kill Adolf Hitler. In fact, you'll, uh, if you're a student of history, you might know that not only did Adolf Hitler have opponents in the Western world, he had also had many opponents in Germany itself. And it was those opponents in Germany who were actually the tip of the spear to put him to death, who collaborated with allied forces and committed espionage and treason so that they could have a chance to kill Adolf Hitler. Because, well, kings don't go down easy. You have to plot together against them so that you can overthrow them. And in that example, we can think about how, how right it was to plot against the king who sat on that throne because he was making poor decisions. And that's exactly the self-justification that the world sees itself in. It says that we plot to overthrow the king of all creation, God himself, uh, because he's not, a, he's not a good fit for king. He's not a good ruler, and we'd rather have someone else in that position of authority. But then the obvious question is, who sits on the throne if not God himself? God does sit on the throne, and every plot against him will come to nothing, as we will find out later. But not only do the, kings, uh, the, the nations plot, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. This is the counsel of the wicked, which the righteous man does not sit in, in Psalm 1. The blessed man from Psalm 1 does not sit in the seat of scoffers. He does not take the counsel of the wicked on himself. Well, in Psalm 2, we see what exactly is the counsel of the wicked. It is the plot to overthrow God himself. And it is between these two pieces that we understand how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 intimately relate to each other. Psalm 1 tells us how we ought to live, and Psalm 2 gives us the reason why we ought to live that way. It is because God is the one who reigns, so meditate on his word, love him, and serve him faithfully. In fact, the rebellion of the world, as alluded to in Psalm 1 and called out in Psalm 2, is actually the very lens by which the apostles interpret the crucifixion of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 4, Peter and the apostles reason about the rebellion of the people, saying this is exactly like what happened when they crucified Christ. In fact, they quote from Psalm 2, when they talk about how Herod and Pontius Pilate colluded together to kill the Messiah. This is the whole of the human rebellion culminating in the crucifixion of our Lord. And it is shown right here in Psalm 2 to be the disposition of the human heart. But again, this is not just the disposition of the world around us. This is also the disposition that we have at bottom. In fact, our own hearts are very rebellious from the start. That statement of rebellion in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords, 
Now, that explains much of how we tend to think about the king. We think about him in terms of restrictive rule, and that whatever implements and barriers and structures he puts in place, they must be a slavish yoke to take upon us. This is what the world sees the king as, but it's also, frankly, how Christians see ourselves often. When we are wrestling with why should we obey God's law? Why should we love him and serve him? Why should we believe him when he gives restrictions about how we ought to live and what we are to enjoy and even how we are to enjoy the things that he has given us in this world? The rulers of the world and the peoples, they all take counsel together and they say things like, no, 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 God couldn't be right about this whole marriage thing. There must be other ways for human happiness and satisfaction, other means and institutions by which you can actually have loyal love, honored and dignified and glorified. Marriage can't be the only way. There must be other options. Or saying things like, his, his leadership is actually not a really good leadership. He's a, he's a bad king. He's a bad ruler. We'd rather have ourselves, or have ourselves on the throne or no one on the throne rather than have God on the throne because he's unjustly in that position. The world takes counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying things like, why do we even have to serve the king who sits on that throne and who gave him the right anyway? The question of the Christian is, do we listen to what the world has to say, or do we even listen to what our own hearts say to us from time to time when we think these very same things? Scripture is clear. In Romans 6, verses 15 and following, that you either serve one of two masters, there's only one way to go, you are either slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. What the world offers to us as freedom apart from a ruler is actually slavery to the sin which is promising freedom. And to obey the ruler, obey Jesus, is actually slavery of righteousness. Uh, as Jesus actually says it in the New Testament in his invitation to the disciples, take my yoke upon me and take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, he's saying he has a yoke. He's saying he has a way. He's saying he has a means of living, and yet he says it's a good, right way to live. It is a light burden to bear. And the rulers say, no, 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 it's an unbearable burden which he has placed on our backs. Let us cast it off, for it cannot be a good thing. So that is the view from below, which then begs the question, well, why aren't any of these things true? Why is it that the world is wrong about how it views God in this way? Well, verse 4 introduces us to the view from above, the view from heavenly, the heavenly throne on down. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them all in derision. We might say that the one who is enthroned above, the one who sits on the throne, his response to the rebellion of the peoples is not fear. It's not concern. He's not worried about how it's going to turn out. He's not thinking there might be something to this one and maybe he should step down. His response is laughter at the thought that he should not sit on the throne and that others are more fitting of that throne. We might often in the West, we try to soften God up to, to make him a little bit more likable, a little bit more cushy. 
This is uh, probably an instance of sarcasm where the one in heaven simply laughs or just scoffs at the fact that these people think that they can overthrow him. It's a little bit like the experience I had when I first started jujitsu, of which I was reminded this morning for those of you who had a chance to go to the tournament that nobody rolled in. <laughs> but when I first started, one of the first things that happened when I entered the gym is the coach of that gym, Kenny, uh, rolls with all the new belts to figure out where is their skill level at. And being someone who had only come a couple of times, I thought to myself, surely this old man who I'm rolling against now, I can beat him. And his response was to scoff. He, he, he said, no way, there's not a chance. And there was no chance. There was no shot of me actually beating him in jiu-jitsu. And, that, and that's because he, he simply outmatched me in every capacity. His skill was far above my skill. No matter what I thought about my own physical capabilities, I had wrongly assessed them in light of his, his abilities. This is what it's like when the rebels go up against the king and he laughs and responds. It's because they have wrongly assessed their ability to overthrow him, their own claim to the throne. They've wrongly assessed the whole matter. And so the only right response is to scoff at how ridiculous the notion is that someone else should be king instead of God. The Lord holds them in derision. And when he speaks to them, he speaks to them in his wrath, which is his response to human sinfulness. And he says these words, As for me, I have enthroned my king upon Zion, my holy hill. He's saying, as to, the, as to the concerns about who sits on the throne, let me tell you how it is. I have put my king on this throne. I have put my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the, the king himself uh, speaks. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And the king pleads his case and says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces, pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the decree of God to institute the king on the throne. And the decree is simply this. The Messiah is on the throne. And actually, as he's on the throne, this is what it's like. He is the son of God. He is the one who is the rightful heir of the nations. He is the rightful heir of the world. He is the one who will reign over it. And he has authority to squash any rebellion with, the, with his rod of iron. In other words, he's, he's a king in every form and fashion that we might understand a king. And in many ways that we would probably have a hard time understanding a king. For instance, uh, kings are rarely good. Rulers, when they have authority, are rarely using that authority rightly for the benefit of their people. And in our world today, where we reject authority in every capacity that it exists, it's really hard for us to conceive of an authority that would not be abused if it was accessed. And we impute that reality onto God himself and say, well, if God has that kind of authority, surely he's using it for his own gain and not for the benefit of his people. Well, that is to take scripture and, and miss the message because scripture is clear. The reason we struggle with authority is because we also struggle with sin. But God, who does not struggle with sin, neither does he struggle with authority. Because authority is not bad, it's only bad as it's corrupted by sin. Authority, when rightly exercised and rightly instituted according to God's good nature and character, is actually freedom. It's the very freedom that we long for and need. So when the Lord says, 
I have put my son on my throne, that is not, that is not the end of the world for us. That's actually the very, that's the very news that we wanted to hear. That's actually what we needed to hear, is that Jesus reigns on the throne. And then you have the, the dialogue about how he reigns or what that reign is like. The phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is found here. And we need to just pull over for just a moment and understand what is being said in that one phrase, because this is probably the most often quoted second to Psalm 110 phrase in the New Testament as it relates to Jesus's claim to be the rightful ruler of the world. When we say that Jesus is the son of God, what we do not mean is that he is somehow derived from God in a lesser kind of sense, that he is any less than the father. When scripture speaks of Jesus's sonship, it speaks of that in relational terms or in analogical terms, meaning it is giving us a means of trying to access the relationship that God the Son and God the Father have with each other. But it is not an exhaustive description because human language cannot exhaustively explain the relationship of the first and second persons of the Trinity. So sonship, yes, is like human sonship, but it is also not like human sonship in a great number of respects. For instance, when a human father has a human son, we can rightly say one has begotten the other, one has produced the other. In fact, in Matthew's genealogy at the beginning of his gospel, he says, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. They birthed one another, they, they produced offspring. This is not what it means when it says that the Lord begot his son. In fact, as the Nicene Creed tries to elucidate Scripture's language on this, when we say Christ is begotten, we mean he's begotten, not made. He is, he's begotten, yes, he relates to him, God the Father in that way, but he's not produced by the Father. He's not created by the Father. Begotten, not made. He is God from God. He is light from light. He is very God of very God. He is begotten, not made. Now you might say, well, human language is falling short of its ability to flesh that out in detail. And yes, it is. And that is because human language falls short of exhausting the mystery of the divine. Christ is begotten of the Father, the only begotten Son of the Father, and yet not created, not lesser than. There was never a time where the Son was not. The Son and the Father and the Spirit were always before the foundations of the world together. So when, when the Lord says to the anointed, you are my son, today I have begotten you, it speaks of Christ. It speaks of his unique claim to the throne of his Father. And it speaks to the unique claim that he has over and against every other claim that is to the throne. And as we saw in the first stanza of the psalm, there are many other claims to the throne. There are many who do not want God to sit on the throne, who wish to usurp that authority, and the son is the rightful heir to the throne. This is the language that Hebrews chapter 1 picks up, and it says, of which of the angels did he say to, you are my son, today I have begotten you? He says it to none of the angels. The angels are powerful, the angels are wonderful, the angels are not the second person of the Trinity. This is the very language that Acts 13 picks up, when speaking of the resurrection and Jesus' unique claim to be the Messiah, Peter 
reasons with the group and says, he is the one who was begotten of the Father. Of whom else could these words apply? This language of the begottenness of the Son is language that Christians hold dear, and we recognize it is a dim picture of what the reality is like. It is language that is is pressing the very limits of human language itself. But what this is, what this relationship between the Father and the Son is, it is flushed out more in verse 8. When the Son uh, is given the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is, this is Daniel 7, where the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and receives from him an everlasting kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This is what Daniel 7 speaks of. This is what Psalm 2 speaks of. This is, this is what Genesis 49 speaks of when it speaks the prophecy over Judah and it says the scepter will not depart from the house of Judah. He is the one who will rule and reign over the world. The, the authority of Christ, the rightful claim of Christ is throughout scripture in this regard. And now we need to understand how that authority and rule is exercised when in verse 9 we are told that his authority and his reign is, it actually has teeth behind it. It actually has a backing. It actually has consequences if you do not serve the Son loyally. Verse 9, And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. The rod of iron is the means by which the Son rules. Now again, the rod of iron is an image It is not as though there is an actual wand waving down from heaven to beat people who don't actually follow the sun. It's an image, a a picture of how his rule and authority is exercised. And it's actually a, it's a flexible picture in scripture. And I'm going to try to show this to you. For instance, where I, where I showed in Genesis 49 or where I quoted in Genesis 49, the scepter not departing from Judah, that scepter is the same word, the rod. The rod does not depart from Judah. His his backing to rule does not depart from him. He has authority to rule. But most interestingly, this picture is developed in the book of Revelation. And so if you'll turn with me to a couple of places in Revelation, we'll go looking first in Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation 2, the churches of Asia Minor are being told why they should obey the Son, why they should hold fast to the confession they once had. And in Revelation 2, the threat is actually that there are consequences to not obeying the Son. For example, verse 26 of chapter 2 of Revelation says this, The one who conquers and who keeps my words, my works, until the end, To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This speaks to Christ being the one who does rule, and Christ's rule actually begets human rule over the nations. It's an interesting idea in Scripture. 
Remember, Adam is created in the garden to rule and to reign. He falls short of that regard. Christ is the one who ultimately rules and reigns. And it is through Christ's rule and reign that actually we are reinstituted as kings and queens over the world to have dominion and to rule. And so this rod of iron, as it's attributed to the Son in Revelation 2, is actually one that is the hope of believers who endure to the end. The one who endures to the end, he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will rule the rebellious nations with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken. So you, Christian, have this opportunity, this, this hope, of ruling alongside Christ in his rightly instituted throne. But it's more than just in Revelation 2. For instance, the, the picture also goes to Revelation 19. Most famously, with the sword that comes out of the mouth of the Son. Specifically, Revelation 19, verse 15. So, heaven has opened. The Son is coming down on his white horse. And in verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, we might say a rod of iron, which is to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is the culmination of the judgment of the peoples. And it's applied once again to the Son. The idea in Scripture is abounding. Christ's rule is one by which his word and his mouth speaks. And he judges and makes war with his mouth, with the sword that comes out of his mouth. This is his rod of iron upon which he exercises judgment over the nations. But the result of this judgment is not simply death and chaos, as it is with humans who exercise this kind of authority. Actually, Isaiah 11 anticipates what his judgment would be like. And in Isaiah 11, if you'll turn there with me as well, Isaiah 11 answers the question, well, why is it good news that he judges those who rebel? Verse 1 of chapter 11, There shall come forth from the shoot, uh, forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is Christ. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. Verse 5, conclusion, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The point is, when he exercises this judging, discerning authority, actually uh, a utopian society is ushered in in which the poor are rightly treated. The wicked no longer get away with their wickedness. They're actually judged for their wickedness. And we might say all things are put right in the end. So his judging authority is actually not so much something to be feared as something that as Christians we long for because we long for the restoration that that provides. Think about it. Every other institution in the world provides a solution or a means to that utopian desire of the human heart, a means towards peace, a means by which everyone can live in harmony together. And some say the means by peace is, well, getting along together and, not, and, and just being okay with differences. Some say the means of peace is 
economic security and technological advancement, and some Christians say the means of peace is Christ ruling and reigning on the throne. That is a rival worldview claim, but it's the hope of Christians. It's the claim that we make, saying uh, whatever economic successes the world has, whatever technological advancement there is, whatever educational successes the world enjoys, wonderful. But none of those will be the solution to the problem that assails us because the problem is sin, not lack of education, not lack of technology, not lack of understanding one another. In fact, sometimes the people who understand each other the best hate each other the most. Understanding is not the solution. Christ reigning is the solution. Because in his kingdom, sin is dealt away with. Death and decay are no more. Because he will break all sin and rebellion with a rod of iron. The last image that's as worth considering, you don't need to turn there, but in Daniel chapter 2, there's this magnificent statue that anticipates all the kingdoms of the world as they reign in succession together. And the last kingdom is, is pictured by this, these clay feet. Uh, and the clay feet, you'll remember in Daniel's vision, are destroyed by a rock cut from no human hands. And that rock later is a mountain which stands in place of the image. The idea is very simple. God and his anointed reign over the world, uncontested, dashing to pieces all of their enemies. And we might say, with all these truths in mind, how is it, how is it that there's, there's, there's any hope for those who are in rebellion? As I said at the beginning of our time in Psalm 2, this is not just true of the world that rebels against God. This is actually true of you and me in our hearts as we rebel against God. Even those of us who say we are Christians and we serve him and we love him, we struggle to obey him. So what hope of escape is there if he exercises with a swift rod his judgment? Well, the hope, we might say the hope of the gospel, is found in verses 10, 11, and 12. So we know the worldview, we know the claims, we know the lay of the land. We've heard from the world, we've heard from heaven's throne, we've heard from the throne of God himself. And now we are given an assessment. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he would be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quick to kindle. And blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Here's the the hope. As Derek Kidner says it, there is no refuge away from him, but there is refuge in him. There's no refuge from him. There's only refuge in him. And, And he actually offers that refuge to you and to me. It is true that his wrath is quickly kindled against rebels. And it is also equally true that he has made a way of escape by which he himself is dashed to pieces such that we could actually stand in his kingdom. This is exactly what's happening at the crucifixion when Christ goes to die. He does not do so merely at the hands of men. He is is killed by God. Christ is killed and dashed to pieces because of the rebellion of you and of me. And when he is broken, he is broken for us. His body is broken in place of our bodies being broken. His his sacrifice is instead of our blood being spilt. His redemption 
is in place of our righteous punishment in that position. And this is how he is the refuge of his people. He is the one who stands in the way of the punishment which they rightly had earned. Because all of Psalm 2, 1 through 9 is true, and yet verses 10, 11, and 12 is equally true in that there is a means of escape, a place of refuge. In fact, the only safe place is under the authority of the king. Rebellion of the king, casting him off, is not a safe option. Going your own way and seeing how it's going to work out, Psalm 2 says, not a safe option. Conspiring about how you might get rid of God today or tomorrow or the next, that will not work out in the end. Psalm 2 tells us, actually in the end, the king rules and reigns. He will exact vengeance on rebels. So you who are rebels now, turn from your former allegiances and come to the kingdom of Christ. He is a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And all who come to him, he will by no means cast out. He is the king who says, I do rule, and yet, here's a door by which you may enter. Now, we must be careful lest our rebellion even takes place at the, at the level of entry, where we begin to say, well, surely this is not the only way by which you can be saved from God himself. But scripture says it is the only way. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to redeem the world. The redemption of God is offered in Christ. The safety and the safeguarding of God's people are offered in the Son himself. He is the refuge whom we seek. He is the one in whom we hide. So don't go from here, later today or tomorrow, and begin to think to yourself, he was a good starting place, but I am now my own refuge. I have built up my own righteousness, my own obedience, my own discipline, my own good works, it was a nice starting place, but now I've matured onto more stable places of refuge. That is a sure place of hopeless despair for the Christian. Because Christians can trick themselves into thinking we are now our own refuge. And we are not our own refuge. Only Christ is our refuge. Similarly, we owe it to our neighbor for love of neighbor to tell them that whatever they have put their refuge in it's not a safe place in which to hide if it is not in Christ. See, one of the great deceptions of the world today, one of the great plots, is for Christians in the West to believe that the way we can love our neighbor best is by tolerating all differences and saying nothing of it. And sitting by quietly while the world goes its own way and saying nothing of the judgment which is to come. And yet Christ models for us love when he reminds the Pharisees and the sinners and the tax collectors and everyone else that there is real judgment coming in eternity. But only for those who stand on the firm foundation, which is Christ, can escape and endure that judgment. That's not just what we need to preach to ourselves. That's also what we need to proclaim to the world. It's what we need to speak about when we uh, rise and when we lie down. It's actually what Christian parents are instructed to teach their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, which leads them to understand he is the rightful authority whom we fear. The fear of God casts out fear of man. The fear of God casts out fear of obeying or submitting to everything else. The fear of the Lord is freeing. 
because it means you don't have to be afraid of anything else anymore. In fact, Psalm 2 lovingly reminds us that whatever thing tells you to fear it and to obey it, if it is not Christ, you do not have to listen. This was the hope of the exiles in the book of Daniel. This was the hope of the apostles as they were being martyred for their testimony. This is the hope of Christians who have lived throughout the centuries and ages, recognizing that the world hates God and will kill all those who stand for him. And yet we say uh, we have no fear of anything that the world can offer to us. There is no fear which outweighs our great fear of God, whom we serve and whom we love, and the Son whom we pay homage to, the one whom we kiss. He is the one who we obey. So what Psalm 2 is, is not only a worldview foundation, but in a very real sense, it's a foundation for us to pray. Psalm 2 tells us how to process the rebellion of the world around us and our own rebellion in the first stanza. It tells us what God rightly sees all of the chaos around us as. It's a sobering reminder that everything that seems large in your life and my life is actually not so large for God. And it's a reminder that he is the refuge for his people whom they can trust in and go to. This is the foundation of the Christian worldview. This is the foundation for Christian prayer. And this is the foundation for all of our hope, the future reign of Christ, which is also his reign currently. And is the the hope of all the nations to take refuge in the Son. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for your word to us, which is exactly what we need to hear. It reminds us of the world as it is. It reminds us of ourselves as we actually are. And it reminds us of the future as it will be. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path which reminds us that the only safe place is in you, our hiding place and our security. You are the God whom we serve, and you are the one whom we worship. Amen.